Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Thank you so much for being here tonight. We've got an incredible show planned for you guys this evening. We are multicasting, which means we are broadcasting live on a number of different networks right now. If you're looking for everywhere we are live, go to allmylinks.com slash thehumanxp. The biggest compliment that you can give us is by telling your friends and family about the show. Word of mouth is how we grow. But if you haven't heard this show before, you're in for a treat. Tonight, we're going to be covering Conquering Addiction, the trials, tribulations, triumphs over a disease that some never survive. We're going to be talking about living a healthy life. So, whether you're here with us live or you're listening to the podcast version of this, thank you so much for your presence. We appreciate you. So, lean back, relax, grab a drink, and enjoy this conversation. The Human Experience is in session. My name is Xavier Katana. My guest for tonight is Carla Juvonen. Juvonen. Carla is an author and works as a physician's assistant. Carla has written her first book titled From the Brink of the Drink, which we're going to be covering this evening. In the book, Carla bears it all from the toll that addiction can have on a person's life and finally her victory. Carla's mission is to help others, especially those who find themselves in situations such as the one she's lived and survived. Carla, it's truly a pleasure. Welcome to HXP. Oh, thank you so much, Xavier, for having me. I'm so excited. I just, um, it's just such a big problem and there's just so much stigma and so much hiding within alcoholism and I think some major misunderstanding regarding who can be an alcoholic who looks like an alcoholic. And I assumed that most people who knew me would never in a million years think that I uh, was an alcoholic. And I was right. So putting my story out there that, you know what, an educated, successful woman uh, can indeed become a raging alcoholic and, and lose almost everything. But the most important thing is that you can get it all back and then some uh, with entering into a recovery. And it's just really remarkable. And I'm so happy to share my story. I, I share it all the time for this very reason to try to inspire people 
to keep trying to, to kick it because you can. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely love that so much. And, you know, in the time that I've known you, you are you are one of the most tenacious people that I've encountered. And you're you're kind of like the little phoenix that could, you know, the rise from the ashes. So, you know, let's talk. This is your first book. And, you know, I love giving first time authors a chance to tell their story. And we I mean, we do cherry pick this. And what what I thought when I was looking at this book was, um, wow, this woman has survived, you know, every possible direction that you could kind of cringe and hang on and wonder what is going to happen next. That's what I was thinking when I, when I read this book. So, you know, being a first time author, how, what made you want to write the book? Tell us a little bit about your, your writing process as well, please. Sure. So, um, I had never really contemplating writing a book. Uh, I thought it would probably be an undertaking that was far too challenging for what, um, I was skilled with. I had not done a lot of writing other than the required writing and coursework in undergrad and graduate school. But um, I had told my story ad nauseum, really, uh, at many different places. And um, someone, actually my first ex-husband, said, you know, you really should write this because it really could help some people. And I just was like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I don't know about that. That's haha. And I started thinking about it some more. And I figured, you know what, Carla, if you can figure out a way to start the book, that would be interesting. And, and a kind of a hook to, to be like, okay, this isn't just going to be your run of the mill. This is what alcoholism is. And this is what you need to do. And you have to jump on this. But it's just more of a mm, okay, this is a story that I might be able to relate to. And so once I came up with the the b way to begin it, then it was just a matter of I jotted down an outline, filled in the blanks, and, and it was written in three weeks. I just came pouring out, very cathartic. And actually, um, even if it had never gotten to anyone else, it was actually a great exercise for myself. Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be that. It has to be a type of catharsis to write that all down and look back at it and, you know, just self-actualize in a way this this sort of journey that you've taken. And I mean, as it turns out, you've already, you've already you've almost captured lightning in a bottle here and your publisher is giving you, you know, you're working on your second book now. Yes, it's in editing already as we speak, actually. So Wow. Okay. Okay. So let's let's get into from the brink of the drink. Um, you know, there's we were talking about this a little bit in the pre-show. Uh, you know, there's such a stigma to people who suffer from this disease. And, you know, where do you think that comes from? That that stigma that society labels this as? I think it starts simply from being ingrained that it's a choice that the first that the the first drink you take is a choice and that is true so i think it's just that um people look at it as if you know there's a problem and we i don't know um it's a problem that was choice be initiated so it should be a problem that they can just mm. fix. Right. Like it seems, I don't know, it's hard to put into words why the stigma is such, but I really think it comes down to the idea that it's a moral failing, that people drank, they couldn't stop drinking because they were somehow less than, they 
were a bad person. They were the grungy old guy under the bridge with the paper bag around his bottle. Uh, you know, they got on Skid Row because of their own life choices. And so let's cast them away. We certainly don't want to catch what they have. Um, we don't want them a part of our society. We certainly wouldn't want them practicing medicine. Um, mm. And I think that it just becomes a, a situation where because of that stigma, professionals, um, particularly medical professionals and, and pilots, really are reluctant to even seek treatment or help because it can be career ending. Absolutely. And I mean, a lot of this, I think what you're hinting at is also is a lot of people are functional alcoholics and, you know, they're, they're kind of taking a drink and living life and, you know, they're, they're functioning, you know, every day. So it's, it's such a strange thing, you know, and I, and I think another reason that we connected was, uh, you know, of Dr. Gabor Mate's work and he's been on the show and a lot of this, you know, stems from childhood, which kind of segues me into the book. Um, you know, you started this process of sort of running away from your problems and, you know, using using alcohol in, very early on in your childhood. You know, how did that start for you for you? And, you know, where did this where did this process begin of using alcohol in a destructive way? Uh, for me, it was destructive from the 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 get-go. I remember my first taste of alcohol. I was a little girl and I had the chicken pox and I had them everywhere, including in my mouth and throat. And my parents made me and my sister um, grasshoppers with the cream to mint the whole thing. And um, it did help soothe my throat. But more importantly, uh, I was able to sleep. And from the get-go in my life as an infant, as a toddler, and, and really through Till today, sleep has been a real challenge for me. And so uh, I noticed that that really helped. Fast forward just a couple of years, and I had really been watching my parents. They drank, uh, mm. but they only drank socially here and there. They'd get friends. All the kids would be involved. We'd play games and have a good time. And I could totally see something change, something switch in the adults where they got a little sillier. They laughed a little louder. Everyone was less uptight. And, and I totally noticed that because I wanted some of that. I wanted some of that peace or that relaxed or that decreased self-consciousness that I could see even from a very young age that was helpful for them. And so I, I kind of made a plan and, and thought, oh, I wonder if this will be helpful for me. And it certainly was. The, the first night that I decided this is what I'm going to try, I was uh, 12 years old. And my parents ha had a liquor cabinet in my dad's office, and it was actually a closet, a small closet, but you could walk into it, turn on the light, shut the door, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I had had a particularly stressful day at school, trying to be perfect and getting straight A's and doing everything I was supposed to be doing. And that was my first high school year. And in my, my little town, 7th through 12th grade was high school. And high school was a hard transition. I think mm. it is for almost everybody. Sure. But uh, I was feeling pressure and stress, and so I snuck in there with a little tiny juice glass, and gin was what they had the most of, so I just poured two ounces into my little juice glass. Then I went into the kitchen and grabbed what I could find that was sweet, and it happened to be, ironically, ginger snaps, and uh, I took my 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 medicine, I guess my, my gin and my ginger snaps down to my room and 
sipped and snacked until I fell blissfully asleep. And that was how it started. The beginning of the end, so to speak. Yes. I mean, a slow, slow process. But for me, it isn't for everyone. Some, some uh, have issues with blackout drinking and things, you know, first time they use. That wasn't the trajectory for me. Huh. You know, it's it's amazing that, you know, this this compound, this drug is available on any street corner that you go to, you can go and find find this substance. And, you know, so it's interesting. And, you know, with with prohibition that happened, it it's I mean, it's they've tried to regulate this, but you know, it, it seems like people use this as as a way to, you know, loosen up sometimes if they're feeling nervous and they don't really recognize, you know, the harm that they're doing, the conditioning that they're setting, you know, this this substance sort of conditioning where they need a substance to, you know, function at some point. And, you know, when did you go from drinking? I mean, you started as a kid in high school and and that's when and that's when you took that first you know drink but as you progressed into college how how did that work you were doing your master's program and um you know were you drinking by yourself again or how did it work mm, yeah i always drank by myself uh because i found it to be safer uh i didn't want the headaches of the party at the you know University of Minnesota with a bunch of people you didn't know and potentially drugs and trouble and cops and I just know so the risk of getting a mine or the risk of getting in trouble in one way or another either with the police or with my parents or with the school uh, that was enough of a deterrent for me to, to decide this one I love but this one I'm going to do for the most part by myself and it was very very functional for me for a long time in college I I would get all my studies done. I carried two part-time jobs. I'd go do what I needed to do. But then at night when it was finally time to go to sleep, I had my bottle of brandy right next to my bed, kind of tucked underneath it. Um, and I would take a, a few pulls off of that and that would, would do it. And I would get up, get up the next morning, not hungover or anything because I hadn't gotten drunk. I had mm -hmm. just relaxed. Mm -hmm. And and then that's an insidious pattern because with alcohol, just like almost every substance, eventually you need more of it to get that same effect. And then it's also easy to kind of overshoot because I want to get that relaxed. I'm not feeling I'm getting it fast enough. And so I'll drink more than I did before. And then tomorrow night, I might need even a few drops more. Hmm. And over years, years and years, that just progresses in some people like me into a really serious, serious problem. Hmm. Yeah, I I definitely, you know, can understand that. But it's it's odd to me because it's it's kind of like a parallel, you know, of other people I would think that they start drinking socially and then move to drinking alone when they're trying to cover up their problems or the way they feel about something. But you know, it's it's funny to me that you had this thought, well, I don't want to get in trouble with these other things, so I'll just kind of drink by myself. Oh yeah, sneaky and sort of manipulative from the from the get go, and it wasn't that I really didn't want to be social, but I just didn't want to get in trouble. <laughs> huh? But I mean, it it did lead to that, and so just just moving forward in the timeline a bit, um, you you got into a relationship, and you know, I, I want to talk about this because I think when we are in these types of relationships that are mutually destructive, I think it can be hard to recognize that immediately. So tell us about a little bit about, 
you know, this this relationship you were in and the marriage and how that worked, how that dynamic worked. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I met Jim in our graduate studies for physician assistant master's degrees in Iowa, Iowa City. And um, my undergrad had been at a Christian college. They were all studying to be uh, par- parochial school teachers or pastors or whomever. And I was the only one there that seemingly the drank. I was the only one there that wasn't a virgin. It, I was the only one there that was less than in my own uh, mind. And so that's another reason I kind of kept my drinking to myself during undergrad. And I wouldn't have chosen uh, such a conservative uh, school had I not been given a scholarship to go there. So that sort of made the decision uh, an easy one. But it wasn't an, an easy three years of time. In fact, I say three years because I powered through it as fast as I could because I really didn't care for it. It wasn't a, an environment that worked for me. For me, I certainly couldn't be myself. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was hiding for a number of reasons, but that's, but that was, that's one of them. But when I got to the University of Iowa, that's a big 10, you know, big school, Iowa City's college town, town, so much fun, restaurants and bars and nightlife and everything catering to the graduate students and and older undergraduate students. And um, I was struggling with uh, our first summer. We had a really, really tricky biochemistry course, and we were going through the Krebs cycle, diabetes and glucose and insulin and how this all works. And it was really hard for me. But I met Jim, and Jim was also a Minnesota native. And uh, at that point, there weren't very many PA programs in the country. So people were from all over the, the country. So he and I sort of met and became friends just simply because we were both Minnesotans. But then he had recently graduated from a, from a biochemistry uh, program. So this biochem class was piece of cake for him. And he was also a fantastic teacher and loved to sit down and go through it and, and, and share and teach, teach. And so that's how it began. He agreed to kind of tutor me. And we studied hard, and I got it, I passed it, that type of thing. But um, we also began to realize realize how much we had in common. We laughed a lot, we studied hard, and then we drank hard. And uh, I could tell right away that Jim was just as heavy of a drinker as I was, if not even heavier. Mm-hmm. And that was so refreshing to me. Mm-hmm. It should have been a turnoff, but instead it was refreshing because I felt like, oh, thank God I can drink how I want it out in the open with him. him. It normalized it. And right. yes, it normalized it because he was using just as much or more. And people with substance disorders tend to do that. Um, you know, that you'll see the the ones on Skid Row are kind of congregated together in a, in, in a drug house or whatever. Um like likes like it just simply does you know a smoker will typically seek out another smoker to be in their relationship with in their romantic relationship with anyway because it's pretty challenging to have one with it and one without and um so for for me it did it gave me sort of a license to drink how i wanted to and um it gave him the same license in reverse. And because it sort of normalized it for us, it just kept insidiously getting to be more uh, more frequent. We went from just in the evenings 
to, okay, we'll do evenings and, and, and Saturdays during the days because we lived on the lake and people would come over and go boating and whatever we could use for an excuse to drink, we'd do it. Um, and then pretty soon it was as soon as we walked in the door, door at night and it was all weekend long. And it's over, over time that just kind of became this gradual march to death by alcohol. And, and, uh, I just didn't see it. And I certainly didn't want to see it mm-hmm. because as, as the book shows later on, the, that marriage fell, fell apart, uh, which will happen if there are, are three, uh, entities within a union. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. doesn't work very well. Princess Diana used to say that about Prince Charles and her marriage, that there were three of us in this marriage because of his involvement continuously with Camilla. And I feel like that was the case with, with our marriage. There were three of us from the get-go. And really the God in our relationship was uh, was booze. And that's wow. just not a very solid foundation to base your relationship on. Absolutely not. I mean, what a dangerous mix of different elements that could lead to, you know, such an explosive state, which it kind of did, you know, moving along in the story. Um, But, you know, I I just want to pause here for a second and, you know, see if we can give the crowd different ways, you know, to recognize this. I mean, maybe there is someone out there listening to this and perhaps they're in a relationship where where this is going on, you know, and, you know, I think what you said rings so true that, you know, you weren't just in a relationship with Jim, you were also in a relationship with alcohol. And it was like, you know, you guys had this love triangle with, you know, drinking together and each other. And, you know, I'm just wondering... Was is there anything in your mind that maybe if you could go back and talk to your younger self that you would tell yourself like you know this is this is what you need to watch out for? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the first thing there is if you're in a relationship or uh, contemplating getting into a relationship, and One of the main reasons is that you feel relief that you won't have to hide something that you otherwise do. I mean, that's a giant red flag right there. But for me, um, and and anyone I think who's already abusing substances, um, you also feel pretty crappy about yourself. You feel pretty lonely. And so it's very easy to glom on and settle for something that isn't necessarily right. And I ignored so many red flags. Jim was actually married. Uh, to someone else when I met him in Iowa City. And we proceeded to become friends and and then more than friends. And he ultimately divorced her and married me. Um, Him being married should have been a giant red flag, right? Yeah. Um, You know, and, and, and him having tendencies even early in our relationship to become the angry drunk the explosive drunk, the punch mm. holes in doors drunk. Um, I should have, hmm, no way. Um, but I married him. And um, even on our honeymoon, uh, we we were drinking the whole time. Of course, many people do on their honeymoons. But for us, we use it as a, a reason that we should be hammered every single day for the two weeks that we were there. And the first night, very first night, um, we drank way too much and we ordered room service late at night and I passed out before the room service showed up 
And he, he was so furious, fueled by alcohol fury. Oh, no. um, this wasn't how he really was, but you know, that he ended up waking me up by throwing all of the food and the everything, the bottles, the everything all around the room. So I, I took a blanket and pillow and barricaded myself in the bathroom on the first night of my honeymoon. Oh, my um, but instead of, yeah, instead of eating crow, tucking my tail between my legs, telling my folks that, yeah, yeah, you just spent 12 grand for nothing. I want out, which is what I should have done. I didn't want to embarrass myself. I didn't want them to know that I had made a bad choice, even though uh, they already knew it. Um, (laughs) And, and I, I mean, we just kept doing our thing and kept covering it and kept plodding along. And if it sounds like Jim is a bad man. Um, he is not. He's funny and he's charismatic. He's scary smart. He can speak and he's a professor and he's such a great teacher and he's so talented in a lot of things. Um, so I don't, I guess I don't regret that I know him and that I knew him. What I regret is us not getting our, ourselves together before we contemplated actually moving forward any further in our relationship uh, because had we quit drink, drinking uh, either we would have decided we didn't have that much in common or I think our relationship would have been much better um, in the long run you know we have two beautiful kids together and now Jim has just celebrated uh, just about to celebrate two years of sobriety which is fantastic and um so, you know, it has really come full circle and we're able to co-parent the kids. And I gave him his one-year chip. I've invited him to my meetings. Talk about what sobriety can bring. If you're out there wondering if you'll be better or worse if you get sober, it might take some time um, to figure out what your new normal is. But it's so possible and, and anything can happen. Jim and I are friends. We practically tried to kill each other when we were getting divorced and now we are friends because we are both sober. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, wow. That's, it's such a powerful thing to hear about because I think most of the time we don't realize like when we are, when we are subjectively in a situation that is in overall negative for us, we don't, we don't immediately recognize that it is that, you know, or if we don't, if we do, we don't want to acknowledge that. You know, we don't want to admit it to ourselves. And so adding sure. adding alcohol to that, I think, is a very dangerous mix of, you know, a very in, in an already toxic sort of situation. You know, Carla, I want to talk about someone. Someone mentioned this in the chat. And I I want to I want to talk about um, the neurochemistry of this. You know, I think when when you're in love, you know, your neurochemistry is already sort of going, you know, in all directions. But. You know, when you add alcohol to this, what is alcohol doing to the brain when we're we're drinking, you know, kind of in this way? Right. Well, exactly. Uh, it's in most simple terms, when you drink or use any kind of substance, certain neurotransmitters in your brain uh, are fired up. So everyone's heard about dopamine and serotonin, and there's also GABA and glutamine and all these different pathways and different neurotransmitters that help to their messengers. So they, they send one message in uh, to another neurotransmitter in the brain. Um, dopamine f- 
helps you with your your mood and it helps with learning and it helps with movement and pleasure and serotonin increases people's mood increases their appetite helps with sleep all those things Um, and when you're in love you're getting some natural surges of those hormones uh, or or chemicals I should say Uh, when you're when you're drinking you're also releasing massive amounts of dopamine and serotonin uh, and then, of course, there's the inevitable when you when it, it starts to wear off, you have this awful crash hmm. uh, uh, where either you have to get through some time without your, your drink or you just say, forget it and go ahead and start drinking and, and decrease your standard a little bit more. OK, I was going to start drinking only at five. Now I'm going to start at 455 because I just can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And you kind of change the change your own rules based on that. So basically, when you get a relationship, let's say that's the fire. So Jim and I were the fire and, and alcohol is obviously the, the fuel. When you right. put that on, you'll get that surge of flame at the beginning that is just so addictive and so amazing. And oh, my God, you want more. And then when you crash, it's just like, and there, there's not even embers anymore. Fire just goes out. It's done. It's dead. It's awful. So the highs and lows in a relationship like that are, are, are addictive in themselves. But when you add alcohol to it, the swings are even greater. Uh, and it's just nearly impossible to find a time in a relationship like that to actually have coherent, logical conversations or to make decisions wisely it's just sort of crashing through life hoping that there isn't an explosion at some point but inevitably there usually is unless you can get a hold on it wow i mean yeah it it seems like just a a series of near escapes and you know you're you're avoiding sort of inevitable tragedy and I mean, wow, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear about this from, you know, a perspective like yours. In, in February of 2012, there was an event in your life that, you know, for most people, it's going to be hard to deal with an event like this. What, what happened in your life in February 2012? And how did, you know, the drinking aspect of things come into play with, with what happened? Yeah, absolutely. I'll apologize up front if I get a little choked up with this one. It's a tough one for me. Um, My cousin, um, she was four years older than me. So at the time she was 43. Um, I had been in her wedding. You know, we we grew up together. Um, She uh, owned a bar and uh, struggled with her own alcohol use, although I'm not sure to what extent because she had sort of begun to isolate away from the family and had had a failed marriage and just some things I think she was possibly embarrassed about or anyway she just wasn't around much anymore which is something something that I'll I'll always regret having not taken the time to reach out to her a little bit more than I did Hmm. not sure if she would have taken the calls anyway but um she shot herself in in the head in her bathtub, fully oh closed with the curtains shut and everything, because she didn't want to make a mess. Um, left a left a note, just basically saying she knew she wasn't living the lifestyle that she should be, and sorry that she let everyone down. That type of thing, um, and oh it was devastating. I mean, when I saw my aunt draped over her casket when they were trying to lower her into the ground you know that's just 
uh, it should never happen where parents have to bury their child. And when it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound, you just had to know what pain was involved there. And I did really work hard to help my aunt through it because they were doing a lot of what everyone does when there's a suicide. What if, what if I did, why didn't I, you know, you should have a blame and guilt and shame and just all of these horrible emotions that, that come into play. And, um, it, it just, it was just awful. And I, I could see, I could, I, I knew that there was a lot to do with alcohol with her. And, and so you'd think, huh, she got so depressed because of her alcoholism that she resorted to, to suicide. And, and that could be my, my fate if I don't get a hold of this. Um, Mm-hmm. But at that time, I was already kind of in survival mode. Um, at that point, I was I was within a year of going to my first treatment myself, um, and so for me, it actually just increased my drinking because I needed to mask that pain, that loss, and that sadness, and that fear that all comes with something like that. I just wanted it to go away. But the problem is, is if you don't deal with grief, you know, you know the stages of grief, denial and anger and acceptance, finally. Um, if you don't deal with with those, those, and in my case, just numbed it, then, then every day I'd wake up and I'd have to relive the pain because I had numbed it enough to forget the day before, but it was still there the next day. And I think it was much more intense each day because I hadn't started even to deal with with actually grieving. Um, it's it's impossible to fully accept or grieve or, or understand anything if you're drunk it just doesn't work it it's just impossible yeah i mean um wow um first of all my condolences i mean what a what a story and it you know it and you, as you said it it should have scared you straight you know it it should have woke you up in a way and it, it didn't you know and i and why? I mean, why do you think, you know, it, obviously the drinking is directly related to this and perhaps, you know, the, the level of the pain, the intensity of the pain, wanted, you wanted to, to mask this as much as you could. And so you, Absolutely. you, you turn to, you know, alcohol to do this. Right. And, and alcohol, going back just a little bit to, uh, again, the neurobiology, um, it rewards us in two ways. There's a, the positive reinforcement of drinking is what you would think, you know, relaxed or forget the pain or, or whatever. But at that stage in my life, I, I was already definitely a uh, alcoholic. And so there's also negative reinforcement. And what that means is if I, if I don't drink, I'll feel terrible. Um, but if I drink, I'll feel not so bad. And and so you know that if you don't drink, that's going to be negative. So that 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 is a reinforcement to drink more. And so when there's a physical dependence that has started, and it had definitely started with me by that point. And if a person like me was already into a physical dependence, um, that's pretty intense. And the first is that 
of course, alcohol does what we'd expect it to. The reason that many people drink is to relax, is to forget. And for me, at that point, it was to numb the pain of having lost her in such a horrific way. But by that point, there's also the negative reinforcement. And what that means is that if I don't drink, I'll feel like crap. And so you know that hmm, I'm going to get this crappy feeling to go away or I'm going to ward it off if I just drink. And, and I'm also going to have the benefit of being able to forget this pain. But then, like I mentioned earlier, the problem is, is that when you wake up the next morning, here we go again, the pain is still there. Right. I mean, you have to deal with this at some point or it's just going to it's going to haunt you until you do. It's going to haunt you until mm-hmm. you eventually do that. Um, you know, I want to I want to move forward a little bit in the story. And you you started drinking at work. Right. And mm-hmm. it, it's it got worse and worse. Um, you know, wh- what brought you to the point where you felt like you needed to drink at work? How did you get away with it? Because, you know, I mean, wasn't wasn't. Wasn't there someone around that would have seen you working and and drinking and noticed that you were doing that? Um, Tell us about that, please. Yeah. Well, I'm a physician assistant. And um, at the time, I was working family practice. I had done that for 17 years. And um, so in family practice, I wasn't working with a team of surgeons and scrub techs and the whole deal. It was just me. And um, I had a nurse, but the nurse and I, as most people will know, when you go to see the doctor, you don't see the nurse and the doc at the same time. The the nurse checks you in and does all that stuff, and then you kind of are two ships passing. So my nurse and I would just sort of dance around each other. So that wasn't an issue. Um, I had an office mate, but she and I only overlapped one day per week. So I had my personal office to myself most of the time as well. But how it got started, um, for a long time, it had been where I'd got home from work and I never even took my coat off or my shoes off. And I went straight to the liquor cabinet and I wouldn't even bother with that first pull with a glass, just right out of the bottle. Um, And then I could barely wait till I got home. So I started keeping a, a traveler or a flask in my car. My house was two miles from my work, but I did not think I could make it from work to home after a stressful day without having that. So I I would start drinking in the car on the way home. Um, And right, I mean, two two miles, can't make it two miles. You usually can wait two miles if you got to pee. I mean, this was crazy, right? Right. But that's the way it was. And um, as you can imagine, the the story going and the the ball rolling, uh, pretty soon at home at night wasn't enough. And I started going home for, quote, lunch. And at that point, I would take a few slugs of vodka. I wouldn't eat anything, but I'd take a few slugs of vodka to get myself a little bit less shaky, kind of ward off the nausea and the sweats that I'd been feeling. And that would give me the boost to get through the afternoon. And then I'd start drinking as soon as I hit the car and as soon as I was at home until I passed out, whether that was in my bed or on the floor or who knows. Uh, it was it was always drink to, to pass out. That was always the purpose. But 
even that was not enough after a while. Um, and I think we addicts and alcoholics frequently make little rules for ourselves. Mm. Um, like, okay, I'm only going to drink on the weekends. Okay. I'm only going to drink at the bar. Okay. I'm only going to drink at home. Okay. I'm only going to drink beer and not anything hard. And it tends to be that when we make these little rules with ourselves, if we're truly an alcoholic, we blow right through them. You just, you just can't, it just gets worse. It's a progressive and chronic primary brain disease. It doesn't get better if you're continuing to use a substance. Mm -hmm. And so my lunchtime uh, trysts were not enough. And I just decided, you know what, nobody has picked up on this. I have not had a single patient complaint. I have had nobody in the office ask me anything. I, I have, I'm getting by with it. I'm getting away with it. So I started filling my water bottle with vodka. And that way in between each patient, I could go back to my office and take some sips and do a note or write some orders or whatever I needed to do and then go back and see the next patient. And so then I wasn't in this giant rush to get out of work anymore because I was there. I was Mm. I was able to have my drink and do my work at the same time, which is crazy and um, took way more effort on my part than it should have. Um, I could run circles around myself six years sober now, uh, comparatively, as far as my energy levels and but still got it done. Um, Uphill battle, but. Sorry, I didn't mean to bump you there. Why do you think we have this persistence to go back to these things that are essentially bad for us? We know we know this is bad for us, but we continue to go back into it and do it over and over. Well, it kind of depends on what exact thing you're talking about. But with substances, it goes back to the brain. And we know so little about how uh, about the brain uh, but we 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 do some of these neurotransmitters and some of these pathways and and it truly is your when your brain and is got the compulsion and your body's physically addicted to whatever it is um, oh it's really hard to kick that and that's why i think we keep coming back to it because the effort required to either avoid it or stay away from it or go cold turkey or whatever is worse and harder and more challenging than just staying with the status quo and against that adapting that you referred to earlier when we were talking about my marriage and in that when you're in it, you don't necessarily realize how bad it is. Um, You've probably heard the story, the boiling frog thing, but um, it goes that, you know, if you put out a little dish of cold water for your pet frog, she'll frolic and she'll play in it and she'll jump around and she loves it because frogs love water tomorrow you make it a little warmer Hmm. she still frolics she still messes around a little bit in the water but you can tell it's not quite as enjoyable but she still gets used to it because she wants to swim and she wants to drink keep fast forwarding every day heating the water and that frog will jump into that boiling water and boil herself because she has adapted Hmm. and that's true it's a real real deal um but it's a great representation um uh although somewhat cryptic i guess of of what we do it's it's we're used to it and even though it's a completely messed up normal it is still our normal and it still feels normal and it still feels like it's easier than the alternative 
because with the alternative, there's also a lot of unknowns, which creates giant amount of fear. Who am I going to be without the drink? Will I have any fun Mm -hmm. without the drink? Am I going to have to lose all my friends if I quit drinking? Is my marriage going to fail if I drink and he doesn't or vice versa? And what if I go get treatment and I have to tell them at work? why I'm gone for 12 weeks or what if, you know, will they take me back or I won't be able to pay my bills for three months. The excuses for not doing something about it are miles long. Hmm, Yeah. I mean, that's so true. And I mean, you nailed it. I mean, you, you, enter this state of, you know, substance dependence where you feel like you need that to behave a certain way. And, you know, I think, I think with alcohol, alcohol specifically, they're, you know, just neurochemically, you know, it's, it's psychologically as bad as it is physically. And I mean, that's what's the most scary about being the availability of it, you know, being able to go down the street Mm -hmm. and acquire this stuff. You, so, you know, moving forward, moving along here, you, you hit a point where you know you eventually got to detox you your mm-hmm. first trip to detox and i mean your your father took you to detox right yes he did so okay so i mean there's there's a few things here you you felt like it was a jail um why why do you feel like you had that reaction um i i find i find that when I read stories about this, that you know, people people don't res- respond to you know their first treatment well, it it seems like traditional de- detox seems ineffective in relationship to mm-hmm. you know curbing these types of addictions. So you know, w- what was your experience like in this in this center? You call it a prison. Um, <laughs> how did it how did it work? Yeah, well, oh gosh, it's yucky for me to even think about it. Um, but first of all, um, and we can get into this much more as, as the call progresses, but um, detox is not a solution. It is not fixing. It is very different than rehab or a program that whatever program you might decide to do, to whatever it is, detox is getting you stopped. That's it. But you alluded to that it's both a psychological compulsion and a physical one. Well, detox gets you out of the scary withdrawal of the physical addiction, but it does absolutely nothing to curb that psychological addiction. That needs months, weeks, years of work, at least in my experience. But um, yeah, so I went to detox and I was going on my own accord. It wasn't that I... Uh, didn't think I needed it. Um, but once you get in there and say, okay, I want, I, I need detox. And then I was very honest with the counselors and everyone. Cause I thought, okay, here I go. I'm going to get the help. And it, it was really, um, it was really shocking what it felt like to have my, a bunch of my rights taken away. Um, and they take away your rights as a new detox or any detox participant because your risk of suicide, your risk of eloping, your risk of doing something stupid is really high when you're in a withdrawal period, mm-hmm. as is your risk of, if, especially if you're addicted to alcohol or benzos, the actual withdrawal part 
uh, can be fatal if uh, not medically managed because mm-hmm. of the risk of seizures. Um, but yeah, so I went in and I told him what I needed and told him my whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so then what happens is you get stripped and strip searched and they take all of your belongings. I couldn't have makeup because it was in a glass bottle and I couldn't have a compact because it had a mirror that could be sharp. We didn't have mirrors over our sinks or anywhere. The bathroom doors were kind of these weird kitty corner with cutout on on the top and the bottom so that you could never lock yourself in there or anything. Uh, there, the water was all run on little, on those little ones you have to push a button to get like 10 second spray. They were all like that. So you couldn't drown yourself. Um, there were no plastic bags allowed. Every, the garbage cans and things were lined with paper sacks. There was uh, just all these things that door handles are real weird because then you can't tie something to it. They cut out mm. the strings of my sweatshirts and my sweatpants and everything. And I couldn't have any shoes and, uh, they take away your phone and take away your purse and take away everything. And I felt like that was overkill. I felt like I should just get in there. They'd give me some Valium. I'd get over it and I could play on my phone while I got through it. <laughs> nope. Wasn't like that at all. Mm, wow. I mean, it, it seems like the system is almost, you know, designed to kind of push people away from wanting to go into, you know, processes like discover like recovery. Um, I want to know, you know, what for you was the bottom, you know, something common that we hear is, you know, you'll, okay, you'll recognize this when you hit, you know, your bottom. Uh, Was there a bottom for you? Uh, Yes, there was. Um, But it was a low bottom. Uh, For me personally, I had to lose my um, relationship. I had to lose my job and then my medical license and then my national board certification and my drug enforcement agency licensure, none of which are easy to obtain and certainly not easy to get back if you've lost them. Um, I had to go um, on uh, state medical. I um, And then ultimately, I lost the ability to even see my children because I drank through a paid parenting supervising time visit. And so I lost them. Um, And so the only person who was still taking my phone calls was my mom. And even she was pretty wary because I had manipulated and lied and worn her out, caused a rift between her and my dad and them and my sister. And it was it was just a mess. And um I had to, I had to lose all of that uh, before I realized, okay, now what am I going to do about this? And that is where I got to on one February uh, morning where I, um, I had already been in detox uh, twice and rehab twice in that 10 month period of time. And I had continued to drink through it and I had continued to just lose more and more. And um, there I was in my walk-in closet. I had a mansion really at the time, um, 6,000 square feet. And there I was in my closet. You know, they joke about closet drinkers. That was me. I really, really was a closet drinker because I had begun to hide it in there for so long. And so there I was, me and every pill in the house that I had left over from years and years of, you know, how you keep leftover prescriptions. And I had all that and my laptop and my phone 
and my vodka, and I was in my closet, and I was researching online, how do you kill yourself with pills? What concoction of what I had would do it? Because I was done. I knew that it was over. And of all things, one of those annoying pop-ups that I usually hate and ignore came up on my computer screen. Um, I'm sorry. This is hard. And it said, uh, do you need help? And for some reason, I called the number. Wow. And the guy on the other, other line, on the other end, was his name was Phil. I never knew his last name. I wish I did. Phil, if you're out there. I owe you my life. Um, and here he's a rehab broker. He's just trying to find placement for people at rehabs and fill rehabs and get a commission, right? But he spent two hours on the phone with me, really turned into a suicide mission, uh, pre- suicide prevention mission. Right. And um, before the phone call was out, he had uh, got me hooked up with a rehab in Florida that would accept the uh, crappy insurance I had at the time. Uh, a plane ticket, a cab ride coming, and he kept on the phone with me until all of this was in place. Uh, I think partially so I wouldn't back out, but partially I think I scared him. Um, and um, he wanted to stay on there with me until he knew I was safe. Um, it was pretty remarkable Good Samaritan duty there. I wonder if he quit the job the next day. I don't know. But, um. <laughs> An angel. It sounds like you had your own angel that day. And I mean, it's, it's like the pop-up that saved your life, basically. Oh, for sure. I, I, I smile every time I see pop-ups now because you just never know. <laughs> Oh my God. Wow. You know, Carla, we're, we're running out of time here quickly, but I, you know, I want to get into, you know, the 12 steps. There, there's a bunch of stuff that I didn't cover here. Um, I, what is your regard to the, the 12 steps? Because I know that you, you know, you, you connected with that and you write about this. And so, you know, what is your experience with this and, and the experience of other alcoholics? I mean, do you, do you feel like the 12 steps work? Did they work for you? Uh, they absolutely 100% worked and work for me. Um, it's not something that, uh, much to my chagrin as a list uh, writer and checker offer of boxes, uh, it's not something that you do the 12 steps and then you're done and you graduate and you get your little card to put in your wallet and you're good to go. That's not at all the case. It's a lifelong thing. Um, but that is not to say that a 12-step program is the only way that people get their drinking under control. There's smart recovery. There's harms reduction. There's medication-assisted treatments. There's Oh, a plethora of other ways. And and I honestly am of the school of thought that I do not care how you get sober if you just do whatever you can to get there. Uh, but for me, the, the 12 steps really resonated, probably again because I am a list keeper and a, and, a, and a box checker. And I like that kind of structure. It's really good for me. And I had lost a great deal of structure during my alcoholism, as, as all substance abusers do. Uh, structure becomes a thing of the past. But um it was really, really good for me. Um, the first step is the most important one and the only one that you need to do perfectly. And basically, that's admitting I got mm. a major problem here and mm. and uh, it's wrecking my life. And that's it with any addiction. If you can fill in the blank there with, you know, I'm eating too much and it's ruining my life. I'm gambling too much. I'm, I'm watching porn too much. Whatever it is, you just fill in the blank. And um, so any of these 12-step programs that you attend kind of use the same 
premise. So I'm not ascribing to a specific program by any means, hmm. um, nor should I if I if I were, because I, I think that that's um, not helpful to say there's only one way. Uh, I think that everybody's recovery is a little bit different. But for me, getting step one right was perf- was really important important. And by doing that, my counselor had me write out an exhaustive list of what happens to me when I drink. (laughs) And and on the flip side, you know, he also uh, had me write a letter, like a like a longing goodbye letter. What is it you love about alcohol? What is it that you're going to miss about alcohol? And I really wrote it as if I was writing to a lover because honestly, at the end, that was my lover. It was my best friend, my lover, my partner. It slept in my bed with me. You know, it was really all I had left. Um, So step one was was incredibly important. Step four is uh, when they typically ask you to search through your past. Um, what kind of things did you do that hurt people? Uh, what kind of things were done to you that hurt you? What kind of resentments do you hold? What kind of sexual indiscretions have you been involved with in your life? And basically writing it all down. And for me, a person who'd always thought that, oh, I'm a really good person. I'm a really nice person. Hmm. In that 106 pages that I wrote of my fourth step, I really couldn't find a whole lot of evidence to support that I was a good person. Not not much at all. Um, and I it was really helpful for me to look at all that because I was like, God, good God, I do not want a sequel to this. I don't right. want to have to write this all out again in another 20 years that, oh, look at all the crap I've done now. So that was really helpful. But the letter was also helpful to me because I hadn't realized how much I loved it. Mm. And that was, I had to grieve it. Even though it was killing me, I had to grieve that loss. Yeah, I actually bookmarked the the list and the letter just because it's so cringy, you know, to be honest. It, <laughs> just reading it, it made me feel like, oh, my God, you know, wow, you know, I'm never drinking again. And <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I just moving along here, I, you know, I want to I think this is important. I, I think the spirituality part of this is crucial. And how did that? take place for you? How did that come into play for you? That's a great question. And it was um, pretty easy for me personally, because I had been raised um, Lutheran Christian, and um, I believed I had a God that I believed in, and I was pretty solid in in my faith, um, so much so that I had really distanced myself from anything God, anything church. I had even stopped praying, um, unless it was a really particularly bad bender and I was praying to die because I didn't feel like I was the, I didn't feel like God would want me. I was a piece of crap and I knew it. He knew it. Everyone knew it. And um, so I had really veered away from that. But the the 12 step program, uh, step two and step three do uh, get into spirituality. And, and this actually hangs up a lot of people. It's like, I'm not joining a 12 step program. I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. I'm agnostic. I don't, there's no way I'm getting spiritual. And that's okay. You still can totally do the program, even a 12-step program, if that's not your thing. What spirituality is is getting to is is that connectedness, that being whole in, bo- in body and mind, and most importantly, realizing that we are but a speck, each one of us in this great universe, sure. and that it, we don't have control over very much. 
and that we don't have control over this either and we need some help. And that is so hard, especially for professionals, I think, with alcoholism to ask for help because we've been independent and we've been well-educated and we've cared for ourselves and others for as long as we can remember. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to be asking for help. We're supposed to be reaching out to Mm -hmm. others when we have a craving to drink. We're supposed to be sharing that 106-page fourth step with another human being? Are you kidding me? But that all ties into the spiritual component. I've got a lot of friends in my healthcare recovery meeting who just, they're just, that group is their higher power. They know that if they need help, if they need to run something by people, bring it to the group and we're all in their corner. And if anyone has a crisis, there'd be half a dozen people at, at least showing up to help them. And that is a, that's a pretty, spiritual experience in itself, feeling Mm. that sense of belonging that a lot of times many of us started drinking to try to belong or to try to feel better about ourselves socially. And so to find that type of connection with people, a real genuine, authentic connection that doesn't have anything to do with alcohol, um, that's new for a lot of us. And it's just incredible. I cannot say enough for the fellowship of any type of support group. Because nobody's going to be able to help a person the same way uh, that someone can who's mm. been there, who's done it, and gotten through it is more important. You know, we share these stories. I go to treatment centers and j- the jail and meet with these women who are kind of brand new. And gosh, that's so important for me to look back and see, oh, yeah, that's where I don't want to be again. I remember that. I remember that. But then on the flip side, they can hopefully look at me and my story and what I was able to get through and how I'm able to do good now um, and find that inspirational, that even if someone as bottom barrel as me made it, that that they can too. And, and your listeners out there, I know it can seem awful. And you've got an intelligent base that listens to you. And that actually is a detriment because we tend to think, Huh, this 12-step thing, that's way too simple. Hmm. Um, or we're, we're, we can outsmart it. We, we got master's degrees, PhDs, we're whatever. Right. And we should be able to be smarter than this. Um, but it has nothing to do with brain power. It, it's, it's, it's not that at all. So making those little deals with yourself or trying to figure out how you can use parts of what's recommended to you in rehab and not other parts – that's a recipe for disaster. I know this because I did it, I lived it, and I know it. Yeah, you know, I think the most powerful aspect of this book was that I felt like I was with you through the journey of it, you know, and as I was reading it, I felt like I was connected to you know, your struggle with it. And I think the first time that I felt like as a reader reading it, I felt you know, the first time that you kind of there was a a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, was the moment where you, you know, sort of recognized that you are in fact blessed, that, you know, you, you started to have gratitude for, you know, your life and who you are. And I, I think, I think that was the first time, unless I'm mistaken, that, you know, there was this positive acknowledgement from, from you, you know, about yourself. And I think that that's so important. Yes. Um, and I think that that removing the substance and starting to get a hold of what it had done to me, how it had hurt me, and uh, realizing that, again, that step one work, just 
admitting, holy cow, this has caused this, and then doing something about it and feeling like as I was learning from these people who had a couple years or eight years or however many years of sobriety and looking at them and being like, oh, ooh, I, I, I think I can do this. I think I want what she has or he has and they're not drinking. And that gave me inspiration and my sponsor and my counselors and anyone in the program continually stress gratitude. And so at first, you know, my gratitude list was fairly small. I had my health back. Um, I had uh, plenty to eat. I was uh, warm. I, you know, those, those basics. Uh, so already out of the gate, fresh in rehab, I was better off than half of the world's population. Um, and so it was really important for me to look at it that way. Uh, and then as time passed, I start adding to that gratitude list and little things that I had taken for granted before I got to add back on that list. Uh, I tell you, that's a pretty cool thing when uh, amazing relationship with your kids gets to be added back to a list that it had previously disappeared from. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's what this is all about is regaining some things and 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 getting a life that's authentic, genuine, real and meaningful that that I never imagined was possible. So am I a grateful recovering alcoholic? Absolutely. When people used to say that in my first meetings, I would be so upset. Like, seriously, grateful recovering alcoholic? There, There is nothing to be grateful about here. This sucks. I don't want it. I don't want to be it. I don't want to be in this group. But eventually, over time, you start to see that, oh, wait a minute. Um I've gotten some pretty cool things happen because because of my alcoholism, mm-hmm. not in spite of, but because of. Um, and uh, I am indeed grateful uh, every single day that I get to wake up and get to be sober and get to do another day. Um, I'm not cured. I'll never be cured. And every day is but a reprieve mm-hmm. from the addiction. And if I were to pick up today, I'd be Worse off than I was the last time I drank in that airport toilet stall back before I got sober. Um, Because it progresses. Even if you're not actively drinking, it gets worse. It's just waiting for you. Um, And a lot of us, including myself, had to test out that theory. Uh, There's no way this disease gets worse. Uh, If I've been away from booze for three months, it, it should be much easier for me to control it now, right? Not at all. It does those those neurotransmitters start doing the exact same thing they were doing before, and it's you need more, you need it more often. It's it's confounding. I mean, I I think another reason that this story is so resounding is that it's just it's just real, you know. It's it's just raw and real, and that's the way life is, you know. It's not it's not pretty. It's actually quite ugly, and. It, that's sometimes that's that's exactly how life is, you know, and mm-hmm. but, you know, I I want to give you a chance to address, you know, the, the audience. And if if anyone's out there and they're hearing this message and, you know, here you are, you are, you know, in every way, a success story. You're still alive and you have this opportunity to, you know, write about write about this experience that you've that you've in a way you've conquered you know you didn't let it conquer you you conquered it and you know here you are on this show writing a book about it what about you know what about the people that are alone out there and they're struggling what what can you say to them what can how can we reach them 
Yeah. Well, it's so hard because often when you're in the throes of the addiction, you you don't want to be reached. Um, and and usually there's very little that anyone else out there can say to make someone want to get better or to fix their problem for them or to push them into rehab. I know for me, I, I couldn't truly get better um, until it was my idea. Um, but I would encourage particularly you chronic relapsers out there who think you're a lost cause. Um, you've been in 30 treatment centers and it, you just can't, can't get it. Um, keep trying. I've seen it. I've seen people go through that many rehabs and detoxes and centers and finally, finally something happens and they get it. But that's because they kept trying and they didn't give up and let it kill them because that is what's going to happen. Um, you end up, if you're a chronic, serious alcoholic, it, it just leads to jails, institutions, and death. It's a very grim prospect uh, that starts from a few sips of alcohol. Um, so it's very dangerous. And I would implore you to keep trying, to read everything you can get, to join some online support groups, to find websites and blogs where you connect with somebody. Um, go on Twitter. There's Recovery Posse. There's all these different groups on on Twitter where it's, you don't have to even tell who you really are, hmm. but you can get some major support that way. And that can help you feel not so alone, but yet in somewhat of a safe, anonymous way. Get out there. Somebody has gone through what you're going through, and they can be able to tell you their story, how they got there, and how they got better. It's all about experience, strength, and hope in this program. It's why it works that, you know, no matter what your program is, the the people who've been in it for a while help the newcomers. And that's the way it should be in life, don't you think? For sure. I mean, Carla, this is, I mean, I'm so glad that you are here still with us today and that you've written this story and done this. And it's such a, it, as I said, it's such a resounding tr just realness to this. Where can people go to pick up this book? Is there a website that they can go to to find this book? Yep, absolutely. Of course, you can get it on Amazon um, and Goodreads and Barnes and Noble, Target, any place books are sold. Um, as far as reaching me, which I invite and love, it, it, you can reach me at um, fromthebrink at yahoo.com. That's my personal email. And also, I have a website of the same title, fromthebrink.org. And there you'll find some blog posts and some connections and a link to the book there, too. Um, but um, hopefully, with those types of, uh, not just my links, uh, with all of the different supports uh, available out there, your listeners have a lot to choose from. And, and you can do it, guys. You really can. Wow, guys. I mean, what a story. And Carla, I just thank you so much for being here. Um, guys, we're going to get out of here. The book is called From the Brink of the Drink. Highly recommend this read. My guest, Carla Juvonen. Hopefully I'll get that eventually. But you guys can find this book, From the Brink of the Drink, online, as Carla said. And if you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week with another episode. Have a good night.